Uh, again, I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Joel Gelfin. Dr. Gelfin is Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Epidemiology, Senior Scholar, Center for Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and Medical Director of the Clinical Studies Unit in the Department of Dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania. Additionally, he is Principal Investigator for the Dermato Dermatology Clinical Effectiveness Research Network, a multi-center study evaluating the effectiveness of treatments for moderate severe psoriasis, founded by RC1 grant from the NIAMS. He's a board-certified dermatologist whose clinical work focuses on general dermatology and psoriasis. Dr. Galfan is the author of over 100 research articles, reviews, and textbook chapters. He's recipient of the 2011 American Sin Association Achievement Award for Psoriasis Research. Please join me in welcoming once again Dr. Galfan. Uh, I'm going to speak to you about clinical implications of psoriasis comorbidities. Uh, my disclosure statement has not changed in the last hour. Uh, so it's the same, I won't go over it again. Um, so how many of you, when you see a patient with one of these disorders, you know, alopecia areata or vitiligo, think to yourself, hmm, I, I better ask this patient some more questions about their underlying medical symptoms and maybe do some blood tests to look for comorbid diseases. How many of you do that? Show of hands. I can see you in the back if you're not raising your hand. There you go, all right, excellent. Uh, so most of us, right, and, and why is that? It's because somewhere, someone wrote in a textbook that these diseases are associated with thyroid disorders or problems initiating, uh, absorbing B12 and things of that nature. There's not really a lot of hard data on it. It's a sort of uh, anecdotal reports. Um, and so we do some screening for these patients. Now, how about this disease, which is much more common in our practice, uh, psoriasis. So how many when you see someone psoriasis say, hmm, I need to think about doing, I need to think about asking this patient questions about systemic symptoms they may be having, or think about screening for other diseases that may be related to psoriasis. So how many hands go up for that? Um, so fewer, but some. And so I started talking on this topic in 2006 when I first started publishing in this area. And it used to be zero, uh, and we're making a lot of progress in understanding the natural history of psoriasis. So what I'm going to try and do for you is, uh, is describe psoriasis associations of major comorbidities, uh, identify the directionality of these associations, which in which cases does, does the comorbidity come first, in which cases does psoriasis lead to that comorbidity, and then recognize the implication of these comorbidities for the care of patients with psoriasis. And we'll be touching on a lot of the uh, concepts that Dr. Van Voorhees touched on. All right, so one thing you have to do is take a step back and think about this disease, psoriasis, which we've known about forever. Okay, there's been over 20,000 publications about this disease. And I would argue that we barely understand it, that there's very few studies that look at the natural history of psoriasis, that look at large populations of patients prospectively for years to see what really happens to people over time. That's changed over the last couple of years, but we're really in the infancy of understanding the natural history of psoriasis. Um, as late as the 1980s is when we started understanding that the immune system was important. It wasn't only until a couple of years ago we realized that the TH17 pathway even existed and was relevant to psoriasis. And now we have this concept that, well, that perhaps psoriasis is really a systemic disease. It's not just a disease of your, of your skin, but people who have joint disease, psoriatic arthritis, and that they have immune cells circulating throughout their body at much higher rates than they should. So, so how did we get to cardiovascular disease and psoriasis? This is like the old... Um, advertisement, a heartbreak of psoriasis from the 1960s and 70s. And then you heard from Dr. Van Voorhees that, well, we need to start thinking about these issues in our female patients and, of course, in our male patients as well. Well, this is not an old, this is not a new concept. In the 1970s, uh, McDonald and Calabresi from Brown first showed in a hospital-based case control study that patients with psoriasis were more likely to have cardiovascular disease. Now, this wasn't done using modern, modern epidemiological techniques, but it was the first foray uh, 
showing that, in fact, there probably was something going on. But at the time, there was no reason to suspect pathophysiologically that there'd be any relationship with these diseases. So it got completely lost from our literature. Then in the 1980s, it became clear that Th1 inflammation was central to the pathogenesis of atherosclerosis, plaque rupture, and myocardial infarction stroke. Enter into our understanding of the immune system in psoriasis now. So now we understand that the immune abnormalities in psoriasis are profound. So to be, look like this, this is a patient of mine, hopefully pre, uh, you have to have about 20 billion T cells infiltrating your skin on a day-to-day, week-at-the-week, decade-after-decade basis. So tremendous inflammation to maintain that clinical appearance. Second thing we know about people with psoriasis is that the more extensive their skin disease is, the more likely they are to have elevations in measures of inflammation in their blood, be they clinical, C-reactive protein, or experimental, uh, Th1 cytokines or Th17 cytokines. And finally, inflammation is now thought to be a common pathway leading to a variety of diseases in which, uh, in which it plays a role. So it can lead to uh, atherosclerosis, obesity, and insulin resistance. And then probably the biggest issue here that's interesting about psoriasis is unlike any other disease, chronic uh, inflammatory disease, it's largely untreated, okay? So even under ideal circumstances, patients who are heavily treated as part of the uh, PUVA cohort study, patients in the 18 top academic medical centers over the last 30 years, uh, only 50% of those patients ever got the disease under control. Most of them had severe disease for three decades. Uh, even patients who are members of the National Psoriasis Foundation, highly educated, highly motivated patients, only about, uh, only about one quarter of them are actually even receiving therapies necessary to control their severe psoriasis. So unlike rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease, with psoriasis for most patients, looking at the natural history of untreated, unabated chronic inflammation. So this is sort of a paradigm that our research group has worked on for the last five years and has been sort of broadening to other groups, which is that basically, how do you get from here to here, to cardiovascular disease? Well, this is the way we think about it, which is that you have common environmental risk factors and genetic risk factors. So as it turns out, smoking and obesity are both risk factors for developing psoriasis. People who smoke or are obese are more likely to develop psoriasis than those who don't have those habits. The other thing is that many of the genetic susceptibility loci for psoriasis overlap with susceptibility loci for um, myocardial infarction, or atherosclerosis, and diabetes. So they share genetic risk factors. Next issue is mediating factors. So once you have psoriasis, you're subject to chronic inflammation, Th1 inflammation, which can promote atherosclerosis and thrombosis, epidermal proliferation, which can promote elevations in uric acid and oxidative stress, both known to be toxic to endothelium, and then angiogenesis, known to be a problem for endothelial cell dysfunction in, in creating conditions like hypertension and atherosclerosis. There then are treatments, uh, some of which could theoretically increase cardiovascular risk, such as cyclosporin. We know that raises blood pressure. Acetretin raises triglycerides and, and cholesterol. Some can theoretically lower cardiovascular risk. Methotrexate is generally thought to be cardioprotective, at least from data from rheumatoid arthritis. And then finally, as Dr. Van Voorhees talked about, the psychosocial burden of this disease. Patients with psoriasis uh, are more prone to depression, uh, alcohol use, smoking, and they tend to have lower socioeconomic status than patients without psoriasis, uh, lower incomes, uh, lower levels of education, likely related to uh, the burden of living with this disease. So what our researchers try to do is figure out, well, how much of this is directly related from psoriasis to this disease? versus shared risk factors uh, or, other fa or, or these other common factors that commingle with psoriasis. Uh, 
And why should you even worry about this? Well, as it turns out, patients with severe psoriasis, those who are likely to require methotrexate or systemic therapies, biologics, phototherapy, they are 50% more likely to die than people who don't have psoriasis. They die five years younger than they should based on uh, our observational studies that we've done compared to otherwise healthy controls. And this is independent of other risk factors. So independent of their smoking status, their, their alcohol status, their, their weight, they have a, high, they have a premature uh, death rate in people with severe psoriasis. And their major causes of death are cardiovascular disease, by far the biggest infection and cancer. So what we want to do is we want to see this curve, which is shifted left, shift to the right, okay? We want them to live a normal lifespan. So many of you, I'm sure, think about psoriasis, well, this disease doesn't kill you, don't worry about it. That thinking is probably wrong. At least this data and other data emerging suggests that people with more severe disease, it's clearly not the case. The other thing you have to be aware of is new clinical care recommendations based on all this data coming out. So both the National Psoriasis Foundation and the American Journal of Cardiology, I was part of both of these statements, advise us now as practitioners to, to advise patients with psoriasis, especially if it's severe, or there may be an increased risk of cardiovascular events, and that we need to undergo appropriate screenings for these patients or refer them for appropriate screenings. This is Dr. Van Voorhees' note, and I'll emphasize, you may be the only doctor taking care of that patient. They're 20, 30 years old. Uh, they have no idea that blood pressure is elevated. How many of you here take blood pressures routinely on your patients with psoriasis? Anyone? A few hands, actually. Usually it's, it's zero, most uh, derm-attending uh, 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 grand rounds I give. So this is actually really encouraging. But most dermatologists don't take blood pressures ever. And I find when we do it with my patients, they really appreciate it. They think we're some type of deity that we've stopped to take their blood pressure. They were thinking beyond just their skin. And we pick up a lot of undiagnosed hypertension for these patients. So it's a real service we do to them. And it's simple enough to do. So as it turns out, people with psoriasis, especially the more severe disease, tend to be loaded with cardiovascular risk factors. They're more likely to smoke, be obese, have uh, elevated, trigly uh, elevated triglycerides, elevated lipids, uh, have, be hypertensive, and, and have diabetes. So the critical question then is, is psoriasis directly related to coronary disease and MI, or is it really just indirect? It's that they have higher rates of smoking and diabetes and other risk factors, and that's why we see this association. And that's what we set out to address in this paper that we published in JAMA back in 2006, where we looked at a very large population of patients to look at their rate of MI. And basically, we use this medical record system in the United Kingdom called the General Practice Research Database, or GPRD. This is a system that was designed uh, to capture uh, medical information from patients. In the UK, all medical care is coordinated by a GP, so anything that happens to a patient, you know about. Whether they go to the hospital or to the, or to the specialist, it comes back to the GP and gets electronically coded was established for research purposes, so the data is, uh, is, uh, is um, tested for quality to make sure what codes are entered to reflect the patient's true medical condition. Uh, the data is collected by GPs on diagnosis and medications, and treatments by specialists are well captured. There's been hundreds, if not thousands, of papers published in the general medical literature in multiple different diseases and specialties looking at outcomes with this data. It's a big data set, there's over 9 million people in it, followed for over 40 million person years, and we've been looking at data from 87 to 2002 for this study. And fortunately for us, uh, much of the GPRD has been validated for uh, other medical conditions, including psoriasis, uh, heart attacks, smoking, other co-variables, to prove that they have these codes, they really have these diseases. So this is a cohort study. In a cohort study, we measure people by exposure. So our psoriasis cohort, we call them mild. They had a psoriasis diagnosis, but never got phototherapy or systemic therapy. We call them severe. They received like, things like methotrexate, that's a tretin phototherapy. 
And the comparison cohort with people who had no history of psoriasis and came from the same practices during the same time periods. They're being followed by the same doctors uh, at, during the same time periods as the psoriasis patients. So this is a very large study, uh, about half a million controls, almost 130,000 patients with mild disease, almost 4,000 with severe disease. There's some minor differences in age and sex that we adjust for in our models. And now this is now a summary slide of all the work we've done in the last five years. So I'm going to show you uh, the risk of MI, the risk of stroke, so MI published in JAMA, stroke published in Journal of Investigative Dermatology, mortality in archives of dermatology, and cardiovascular death just published in the European Heart Journal. And so the first thing you see is these are adjusted for major cardiovascular risk factors. So you're looking at the risk of heart attacks in people with psoriasis, independent of traditional uh, cardiovascular risk factors, independent of their body weight, their smoking status, their blood pressure, things of that nature. And what you see is a dose response. So for, more, for severe disease, you see significant increases in, in cardiovascular risk, more modest risks or no risk in people with mild disease. You see something called an age interaction, which means that the relative risk of cardiovascular events is higher related to psoriasis in younger people than older people. And we see this a lot in the cardiovascular risk uh, epidemiology literature. So diabetes follows the same pattern. Metabolic syndrome follows the same pattern. And then finally, this is telling you how clinically significant this is. This is again looking at patients who have more severe disease, the kind of patients who hang out with us uh, in dermatology clinics. And what you see is if we just use a, a combined estimate of all these, the risk of MI, stroke, death, attributable to severe psoriasis and not their cardiovascular risk factors, uh, they are about 30 times more likely to have a major cardiovascular event in a given year than they are to develop a melanoma in that year. Okay, so we know melanoma is important. We know we have to do full skin exams on patients. Clearly, cardiovascular risk is important in these patients as well. Okay. And then one thing I just want to bring home also is a lot of times people will say, well, the relative risk is higher in younger individuals, so I'm more worried about the younger people. But one thing you have to keep in mind is that as people age, their absolute risk is going up because their underlying risk of, of cardiovascular disease goes up. So shown here is sort of the, the, the relative risk curve, which goes down over time, but their actual excess risk curve is going up. Okay? So just because your patient's 60 doesn't mean that you say, oh, don't worry about the psoriasis playing a role here. It's still playing a role and playing a, a bigger role, actually, in terms of the absolute risk of having an event. So over a period of 10 years, we estimate that people with psoriasis, severe psoriasis, have about a 6% probability of having a major cardiovascular event related to psoriasis and not cardiovascular risk factors. Uh, that's considered to be significant. The same estimate for diabetes is about 6% too. Um, the excess risk of death uh, amongst people with psoriasis is highest for cardiovascular disease. And about half of the excess mortality we see is from, cardi is from cardiovascular events attributable to psoriasis and not other causes. So if we could somehow wipe out the risk that psoriasis confers for cardiovascular disease, we would add two and a half years to these people's lives. Now, this is now a series of analyses we do to prove or disapprove that our data are telling us the right thing. So one thing we look at is information bias. You could say, well, maybe the patient is being seen more often. That's why you're picking these events up. So we do some analysis to show that uh, patients who are uh, seen on a regular basis have the same uh, effect, for example. There's no difference uh, in how often and what, uh, what the results are when you look at people seen regularly, for example. Um, we also excluded patients with psoriatic arthritis diagnosis or restricted it to people who had therapy specific for systemic for severe psoriasis, like phototherapy or oral retinoids, found the same effects. 
You can say, well, what about stress, Dr. Gelfand, or other risk factors for cardiovascular disease? And here we do an analysis where we say, well, how potent a risk factor would you need to make this go away? And what we find is that you have to have a very common risk factor that was not studied, 20% in the general population. Uh, that to be strongly associated with psoriasis, an odds ratio of 2.7, and be even more strongly associated with cardiovascular death with an odds ratio of 6.5. And such a uh, risk factor doesn't exist. It's extremely unlikely that that would be playing a role here. And then treatment effects, importantly, when we exclude methotrexate-treated uh, patients, uh, we find that the risks tend to go up a little bit, consistent with the idea that methotrexate may be um, protective. And when we exclude cyclosporine-treated patients or retinoid-treated patients, risks do go slightly down. So some limitations of this work, well, we, we haven't looked at skin severity directly, so we can't really say what body surface area is involved that causes a higher risk of cardiovascular events. We may be underestimating these true risks because methotrexate is probably cardioprotective, and it's a main therapy people receive in the United Kingdom for severe psoriasis. And we really haven't looked at the mechanism. So you know, we think it's inflammation. We don't really know for sure. This is data hot off the presses. I just added this slide a couple, of a couple of minutes ago before this talk. The wonders of PowerPoint. This is in the uh, current issue of the Archives of Dermatology. We just published this paper looking at uh, whole body inflammation using FDG PET, CAT scan technology. So that's known to be predictive of uh, future cardiovascular events. And we could show that patients with psoriasis uh, have increased vascular inflammation equivalent to two decades of aging above and beyond their cardiovascular risk factors. So really system, uh, uh, significant systemic inflammation that we can't measure very easily. I mean, these patients, their CRPs were normal, for example. Uh, and other, mark other markers in their blood for inflammation really weren't up. But when you actually look at the cellular activity, it is very much activated. And many of our patients have subclinical um, uh, liver inflammation as well as joint inflammation without having symptoms as of yet. So what about confirmatory studies? So since our work has come out, there's been at least 13 papers confirming the findings that we've looked at uh, in cardiovascular disease uh, and psoriasis, showing that psoriasis is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, including some that find to be a strong risk factor, say, diabetes, which is considered to be a cardiovascular risk equivalent. There have been a couple of negative studies as well, and I'll just call your attention and bring back my old talk. So what these studies have found is they've, they've been studies of no association, but when you look at their 95% confidence intervals, and you look at their point estimates of association, what you find is that they actually find the same risks that we and others have found, or more, or more extreme risks, but they're not statistically significant because they're underpowered. Cardiovascular epi studies have to be big, thousands of patients, not you know, a few hundred patients. So at this point, you guys just have the question, well, does psoriasis cause cardiovascular disease? So back to our, our criteria of causation. So there's a time sequence well-established. Biologic credibility is well-established. Uh, dose response has been established in several studies now. Uh, consistency, of, consistency of studies, well, there's about 18 studies now that have a positive finding and three negative studies which are underpowered. Uh, strength, strength of association is sort of modest but clinically important. It's similar to major cardiovascular risk factors like diabetes and smoking. And strength of the study design, well, you can't do a randomized controlled trial to answer this question. We can only do cohort studies. Um, but many of them have been done in ways that, con that control for some of the limitations of observational studies. So, so how many of you here now, we'll put our, our nickel down, I guess. How many people here think that psoriasis causes cardiovascular problems? How many people raise their hand for that? Okay. Not a lot of hands. Well, wow. how many people are uh, just really tired and can't get their arms up? <laughs> You got to get ready for, you know, happy hour's coming, folks. Get those arms ready, you know, like this. Um, okay, how many people think it does not cause cardiovascular disease? I'm not convinced by this data. 
We have a lot of uncommitted people. Okay, yeah, I bet one way or the other. Okay. Turn off your iPads and iPhones. All right. Um, well, so I guess I'll answer for the group then. All right. So, uh, so my view is that severe psoriasis clearly predicts cardiovascular disease and death. There's no question about that. Uh, if you're an insurance agent, an actuarialist, this is the kind of information they use on a regular basis to predict risk uh, and decide how to stratify someone. Uh, but more data necessary to prove a causal relationship. I mean, um, well, we'll go into the next slide and we'll show how this works out. So how many of you think that we should be aggressively treating psoriasis in order to lower the risk of cardiovascular disease? People will raise their hand for that. Oh, it's a lot of hands. Some people are waking up now. Okay. Uh, how many people think, nah, this is still an elective disease to treat? Uh, treating it doesn't really play a role as far as we know in cardiovascular risk, and it should be elective. Uh, how many people go for that? Wow, not a lot of hands for that. Okay. Um, well, so I think the answer is we really don't know is, is the problem. So we don't know if treating psoriasis aggressively will affect their cardiovascular risk in any uh, robust manner at this point in time. I had this slide up here showing uh, 1970 uh, hypertension as a silent killer. And that's because in the 1960s, if you had high blood pressure, they thought that you were a type A personality and that you didn't need treatment for your hypertension. It wasn't until the first randomized controlled trial was done showing that lowering blood pressure lowered your risk of cardiovascular death and stroke that the paradigm completely changed overnight. Same thing in psoriasis. Uh, ultimately, in 2010, you know, psoriasis may be the visible killer sitting right in front of us. You know, that just flaking away and inflamed right in front of our face for all these years. And until we actually do studies with hard endpoints, looking at cardiovascular event rates, we're not going to know for sure if we're doing the wrong thing for our patients by not treating them uh, and controlling this, uh, this potential risk factor for cardiovascular disease. We just need more data, and hopefully we'll have that in the next five to ten years is my guess. Oops. All right, now I've managed to get into the uh, edit. Thank you, thank you. All right, so, but there are some recommendations for this. So one is, is as um, dermatologists, you may be the only patient taking care of the patient with psoriasis. So we need to make sure they're undergoing standard age-appropriate screenings. Uh, that means a hypertension, blood pressure check, at least annually. Uh, some people do it every visit, actually. Uh, diabetes, fasting glucose, every three years, starting at age 45, probably earlier in people with psoriasis because they have higher risk of diabetes. And cholesterol, every five years, starting at patients age 20 or older. So in my practice, what I do is I ask my patients if you had these things checked. If they haven't, uh, I either ask them to stay a primary doctor or I'll start doing it for them. And then an unresolved question, which we're, our group's working on, is whether or not they should have more aggressive lipid control. Because when we set people's lipid targets, uh, what their LDL target should be, it's based on a 10-year risk. And, and our data suggests um, that we probably should be treating cardiovascular risk factors more aggressively in people with psoriasis. And this is already being uh, advocated in rheumatoid arthritis, a similar pathophysiology disease where they already recommend more aggressive treatment of cardiovascular risk factors. All right, uh, so I want to pause. Any questions about psoriasis and cardiovascular risk before we move on to the next parts of the talk? I want to give people the opportunity to give some feedback and uh, stretch up and walk a little bit. Uh, the bonus is that you get uh, lower risk of DVTs if you come to the microphone. Please. Yeah, so the question is, does CRP come down with treatment? Yeah, well, with the biologics, and yeah. um, so, have, have they studied that? Yes, I, I, just so you know, I have uh, eagle-like hearing, so uh, you have to be careful. You're whispering about me in the back. I can hear everything you're saying. Um, so do biologics, do, so yes, there's actually data, Bruce Strobel published a while ago with a Tannercept that uh, uh, CRP goes down uh, um, in a randomized controlled placebo uh, manner. So we know that certainly biologics lower t uh, CRP. I believe most of the biologics have data for that as well. We just don't know what the clinical significance of that lowering is. 
Any other questions? I see, I see a hand way in the back. And uh, I was just joking about my eagle hearing, so come to the microphone if you can. Okay, maybe some of the stretching, getting their arms ready for, uh, um, I was told there's going to be some type of uh, beer pong tournament after this. Is that what's coming up next? No. All right, uh, so obesity and psoriasis. Uh, so it turns out obesity is a risk factor for psoriasis. About a third of all cases of psoriasis are estimated to be related to obesity. So if you could get rid of the obesity epidemic in the United States, you'd have about a third less cases of this disease. Uh, the other issue is that psoriasis has been shown to be uh, uh, associated with the metabolic syndrome in both children and adults. Recent data published literally within the last couple of weeks showing that even kids, you know, 10-year-olds, have higher prevalences of metabolic syndrome when they have psoriasis. That's remarkable. Uh, data that we uh, showed at the Society for Investigative Dermatology a couple weeks ago and is under review for publication, showing a dose-response reaction. This is 4,000 patients with psoriasis uh, who have either mild disease, less than 2% by surface area, moderate disease to 10% by surface area, or more than 10% by surface area. See a nice dose-response from no psoriasis to mild to moderate to severe of having metabolic syndrome. Uh, and then the other thing we showed is that Independent of the factors of metabolic syndrome, uh, some individual components vary by, uh, by severity of psoriasis as well. Uh, so people with psoriasis have higher rates of hypertriglyceridemia, uh, hypoglycemia, and obesity, independent of all the risk factors for these things. Okay? So what this data tells you is that when you look at someone with psoriasis, you can't say, well, this person is thin, so I don't have to worry about them having metabolic problems. That's not true. This data is telling you that independent of obesity, in a dose-response manner, they are more likely to have elevated triglycerides. They are more likely to have elevated glucose in their blood. Now, there's uh, important clinical implications of this work. One is we know that the impact of weight on efficacy of some of our therapies, like biologics, can be substantial in some cases. Uh, those which are weight-based uh, tend to have less decreases in efficacy as people get more heavy. Uh, drugs which are not weight-based, especially in the very morbidly obese, uh, tend to have substantial drop-offs in their efficacy. Next issue is risk of diabetes, an evolving area of work. Basically, we showed in 2005 and 2006 that people with psoriasis were more likely to have diabetes. Uh, and that was independent of risk factors. So for example, what this is telling you over here is that they have about a 90% higher rate of diabetes in people with severe psoriasis. And if you make all the risk factors equal, you know, their body weight, things of that nature, they still have a 60% higher risk. So about 30% goes away when you address for these other confounders. But independently, they still have a much higher rate of, of diabetes. And others have then confirmed that. The risk of uh, diabetes in people with severe psoriasis is nearly double. Uh, in nurses, a more general sample, uh, a 60% higher risk of diabetes, independent of major risk factors for diabetes. So clinical implications, we recommend uh, patients with psoriasis. Uh, if they're concerned about their family members developing psoriasis, their children, we recommend that they try and maintain a normal body weight for their children, uh, because uh, obesity seems to be a risk factor for developing psoriasis. Uh, screening for diabetes and lipid disorders in people with psoriasis, especially when the disease is severe. And remember that there can be an altered risk-to-benefit profile of your therapies based on uh, comorbid metabolic disease. So we know there can be decreased efficacy of some of the non-weight-based treatments. We also know that uh, drugs like methotrexate, based on our guidelines, require more aggressive monitoring with liver biopsies in patients who are obese or have metabolic disorders. And that's due to the risk of fatty liver disease, which is felt to be a risk factor for having uh, subclinical cirrhosis from methotrexate. All right, so um, smoking and psoriasis. 
So smoking may also be a risk factor for psoriasis in sort of a dose-response manner. Uh, but what's interesting is that, uh, is that pustule psoriasis has incredibly strong associations with, um, with psoriasis. Actually, pustule psoriasis of the hands and feet has an odds ratio of about 10, which is one of the strongest associations for any disease with smoking other than lung cancer. So smoking and, um, and cardiovascular disease has an odds ratio of 2. Smoking and pustule psoriasis of the hands and feet is an odds ratio of 10, really strong association. Uh, how many of you here take care of people with pustular psoriasis of hands and feet? I mean, all those patients smoke, in my experience, and none of them will drop the cigarette. I mean, I, I, they, they have no interest in quitting. It's amazing. Uh, heavy smoking has been associated with more severe psoriasis as well, so possibly there could be some modification of psoriasis. It could be worse than people who smoke a lot. Uh, alcohol and psoriasis, well, the literature is all over the map on this topic, uh, but excess alcohol has been associated mainly in, in people, in, in male patients, people with more severe psoriasis, and is a good marker for noncompliance. So you have a patient who is just not getting better despite good therapies. You have to wonder about their compliance rate and whether or not alcohol is playing a role. So some clinical implications here of smoking and alcohol. So again, smoking cessation for all of our patients, especially with pustular disease. This is critical given that they have higher risk of cardiovascular disease at baseline. They need to get rid of some of their modifiable risk factors. Smoking avoidance of people at risk for developing psoriasis. Those were family history. Uh, alcohol is a marker for treatment failure noncompliance. And it can alter the risk benefit profile of our treatments. We all know that uh, alcohol is a no-no with methotrexate. But what about chronic alcoholic hepatitis and TNF inhibitors, that might be a nice option, right? You wouldn't use methotrexate. But actually, a randomized controlled trial showed that using a TNF inhibitor like Etanercept uh, increased mortality in patients with, with uh, moderate to severe alcoholic hepatitis. So they thought it would help the disease and actually hurt the disease. Okay, so we'll move on to cancer. I'll, I'll pause again. So we've covered some metabolic stuff and some uh, obesity and, um, and smoking alcohol. Any questions about this and how it imp uh, impacts clinical practice? I know everyone's thinking about alcohol uh, and these other things. Okay, so cancer. Maybe I am, I guess. All right, so cancer is a special concern due to chronic use of immunosuppressive therapies, comorbid behaviors like smoking, and chronic inflammation. People with severe psoriasis are about 41% more likely to die of a cancer than people without psoriasis. It's the fourth highest, risk of, it's the fourth highest excess cause of death in these patients. And solid organ cancers of the liver, lung, pancreas, breast, colon, they've all been variably and inconsistently associated with psoriasis. We don't really know what that data means. But lymphoma's been of special concern. I touched on this earlier. So I showed you earlier that, um, that the data's mixed on lymphoma risk in psoriasis, but that clearly has a very strong association with continuous T-cell lymphoma of the skin. And what we don't know is that, could this be this chronic inflammation leading to a T-cell clone that becomes lymphoma? Or is it misdiagnosis, or is it our treatment, or some combination of these things? Probably all three are playing a role. So this is very important clinically. You need to remember that, uh, that in patients with severe disease, especially if they're treatment failures, you want to consider a skin biopsy to make sure you don't have an underlying cutaneous T-cell lymphoma that's driving their clinical features. You need to remember that CTCL, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, may rapidly progress with immunosuppression and even cause death. So these are some sort of interesting patients from my clinical practice. Uh, a patient here has sort of typical psoriasis uh, on the buttocks and the elbows, but then when you look a little closer to his upper back, he has uh, these annual lesions up here and some hypopigmented macules. So biopsy of the lesions on his buttocks was psoriasis. Biopsy of the annual lesions showed patch stage mycosis fungoides. So how would you treat this patient? I mean, he has extensive disease. Um, what therapies would people suggest in the audience to treat this person? 
So UV lights, we tried narrow band phototherapy, it didn't, it didn't work for him. Uh, what would be your next option? So we're out of options now? This poor guy's got to live flaking like this. Uh, so one is my approach in patients who have uh, psoriasiform dermatitis NOS. I don't really know what the hell they have. And this comes up a fair amount. Um, is uh, drugs which are non-immunosuppressant, uh, oral retinoids are nice choices. They work for psoriasis and for um, clonal uh, dermatitis and things that are in the MF range, and they don't exacerbate it. Uh, methotrexate is probably not an unreasonable choice. Uh, and then PUVA, of course, is a great option. So this is a person with skin type 5. His risk of skin cancer from PUVA is close to zero. Okay, so the data that Dr. Vavoris and I were talking about really applies to type 1, type 2, type 3 skin, not type 5, type 6. All right, so PUVA is totally appropriate. He completely cleared with PUVA. That's been a nice regimen for him. Uh, another patient who was a longstanding uh, patient with severe psoriasis in our community, seen by multiple dermatologists, thought to have psoriasis and maybe PRP. Uh, those of you in the back, if you put on your opera glasses, yeah. Uh, you might be able to see uh, these nodules. These are, this is tumor stage mycosis fungoides. So this is the kind of guy you don't want to hit with a, a TNF inhibitor right out the back, uh, right, out, right out the uh, gate, or uh, cyclosporin. This is someone who needs biopsies, workups. If you're unsure, you want to use retinoids and things like PUVA or phototherapies or methotrexate. All right, so always consider a skin biopsy in patients with atypical features of psoriasis and those not responding to treatment. Uh, encourage patients to stay up to date on age-appropriate cancer screening. So if you're going to use a lot of immunosuppressive therapies, which may or may not increase your risk of cancers, you want to make sure you're not treating people who have prevalent malignancy, right? So uh, Dr. Van Voorhees touched on this a little bit, but a pap smear should be done every two to three years starting at age 21 in women, okay, up to age 70. So I always ask one of my patients, when was the last time you had a pap smear, and what was the result? If it was abnormal, we make sure they're being followed more closely if we're going to put them on a TNF inhibitor or another immunosuppressant. Uh, breast cancer uh, mammography is supposed to start at age 50, uh, possibly age 40, depending on the patient's preferences, and every two years. Uh, colon cancer, um, a fecal cold blood every year. Flex sig every five years, colonoscopy every 10 years. So you don't want to take a, your patient who's 59 years old, has never had a colonoscopy, never had a mammogram, and hasn't had a pap smear in five years, and put them on one of these drugs, because they may have a prevalent malignancy that you could exacerbate. So you want to make sure they're up to date with age-appropriate cancer screens. And this has happened to me. I've had patients who have caught uh, breast cancers and who hadn't had mammography done in three years. They wanted to go on a biologic. I said, when's your last mammogram? They're like three years ago. Did the mammogram, and they, and they picked up a cancer. So you want to make sure you're not treating prevalent, patients with prevalent cancer. And then clearly, large long-term studies needed to fully understand the risk of malignancy related to psoriasis and its treatments. All right, infection in psoriasis. All right, so uh, streptococcal uh, pharyngitis is known to be a risk factor for glutate psoriasis. It's felt that biologically, there's molecular mimicry of streptococcal M peptides in human keratins. Uh, but you may not be aware of, may have forgotten that HIV is an important risk factor for more severe inflammatory presentations of psoriasis, where HIV is felt to act as a super antigen activating T cells. And finally, despite the 20,000 publications in psoriasis, until we recently published an article, there was not one paper published looking at the risk of uh, infection in people with psoriasis. Incredibly, there's nothing out there in the literature. And now some papers are emerging. But basically, we found that people with psoriasis, severe psoriasis that is, were 65% more likely to die prematurely of infection, things like sepsis and pneumonia, than people without psoriasis. So there's probably something going on that predisposes them to infection as well. <laughs> So clinical implications, well, one, screen for streptococcal infection in people with flares of psoriasis, glutate flares. 
Screen for HIV disease in patients who present with severe psoriasis. This is a patient who presented to me in my Rittenhouse Square office when I was, uh, uh, back in the days when I was finishing my residency in moonlighting, so Rittenhouse Square is sort of a very fancy part of Philadelphia. And um, he walks in, my last patient at night at 8.30, has severe inflammatory psoriasis, and those, uh, you can, in the front, maybe I'll make out these little blue things here. What are these little blue things? I guess. Yeah, so it's, it's it Kaposi's sarcoma. All right, so this is a guy who I'm looking at and I'm talking to him, risk stratifying him and saying, well, do you have any risk factors for HIV disease? And he has had multiple risk factors for HIV disease, uh, tested him. Again, you don't want to treat people who may have HIV uh, with immunosuppressives. You want to think about screening for HIV disease in patients. Uh, and after uh, heart therapy, highly active uh, antiretroviral therapy, his psoriasis is completely clear. I mean, these drugs are incredible in terms of what they do for re immune reconstitution. He doesn't need methotrexate, he doesn't need phototherapy, he just needs to get his HIV under control. Oops, I did it again. In the back, if you could save me again, sorry about that. Oh, actually, I could, I could actually move this. Maybe I'll do it, let's see. I can't do it. Can you, in the back, AV folks, could you uh, get that part off the screen? Oh, I did it. I think I did it. Okay. Then vaccinations. This came up with Dr. Van Voorhees. I'm going to take a slightly different take on this. Uh, rats. <laughs> I'm getting tired, too. I guess it's showing. Can you fix that for me, or do you want me to fix it? Uh, I think you went to happy hour already. I'm getting good at this, actually, now. I may work for you guys. All right, so um, influenza annually, and you want to use the killed vaccine. Obviously, you don't want to use nasal inhaled vaccine. Pneumonia makes sense for even people who are not 65 or older. The CDC says that patients who are going to be immunosuppressed should get the pneumonia vaccine. And in the RA literature and, um, and IBD literature, they routinely vaccinate people with pneumonia vaccine. I do it in my patients as well. Pneumonia is the most common serious infection that does people in. Okay? So even though you're young, 30, 40 years old, your odds of having severe pneumonia is pretty low. But that's the one that's most likely to, to get you. Uh, that's more, much more likely than cryptococcosis or something like that. And we could, we could take that risk off the table or substantially lower with a pneumonia vaccine. So I, I vaccinate patients for that. Uh, and then zoster vaccine, I think this is a little more controversial in, in, in some ways. It's a live vaccine. Um, it, we're not preventing a deadly illness. We're preventing uh, an illness that uh, can have significant morbidity to it. Uh, and hepatitis B in the right patients. So people born more recently in the last 10 years, 15 years, they all get hepatitis B vaccination at, at childhood, uh, at birth. Uh, those of you who are healthcare workers, most of us in this room have probably been hepatitis B vaccinated. But your t woman in the 20s or 30s, a man in the 20s or 30s, they may not have gotten hepatitis B vaccination. They're sexually active. And they pick up acute hepatitis B vaccination, hepatitis B infection. Uh, and they're on a TNF inhibitor, they may have a fatal outcome. Uh, so it's been shown with so many antibodies in the uh, IBD um, population, that it's been uh, reactivation of chronic hepatitis B with fulminant cases and some mortalities. So that's another risk we can take off the table. All right, so now we're gonna move on to psoriasis and mood uh, disorders. We're talking about qual uh, qualitative data. And this is John Updike. So John Updike is a, was a famous uh, Pulitzer Prize winning poet who lived with psoriasis from a very young age. Uh, he recently died. Um, and he said that only psoriasis could have taken a very average boy and made him into a prolific and adaptable and ruthless enough writer. 
And what Updike meant by that was that, you know, to be a writer, you have to be able to put your work out there for people to tear it apart and say, you're a horrible writer, you don't know what you're doing. That's the same experience with psoriasis. You know, anywhere they walk, their psoriasis is visible. They're going to be criticized by people, you know, whether they're trying to get food, uh, go get their hair cut, go to the gym, uh, things that uh, those not living with skin disease may not be aware of or take for granted. Uh, this is a really profound experience for people who deal with the disease. Now, less sympathetic people in history have had psoriasis. Uh, Stalin had psoriasis, and this was a nice historical uh, review of his experience. And so he uh, had severe psoriasis that was treated with something called, something called lysates, which is derived from uh, horse urine by a guy named Kazakow. He was an uh, internist. And Stalin was so impressed by this that he, he closed the entire State Institute of Skin and Venereal Diseases. Uh, which is about 30 doctors working there, just fired them all and said, Kazakow, you're in charge, study this lysate stuff. Now, as you know, uh, many therapies are prone to tachyphylaxis. Earlier on, I talked to you about the perils of not practicing evidence-based medicine. Uh, ultimately, his disease came back, it relapsed, and he had Kazakow uh, tried and executed. So uh, I know many of you have difficult patients to take care of, uh, and uh, just be glad you don't have any dictators in your practice. Maybe some of you do. but. Uh, yeah. All right, so now Abby alluded to some of this data earlier. Uh, there's been a lot of work showing that people with psoriasis have as much or more impairment in their physical and mental health functioning as other major diseases. So mental health functioning, they do worse than people with arthritis, congestive heart failure, recent MI. Only people with bad lung disease and depression do worse. Uh, physical function, uh, they do worse than people with diabetes, lung disease. Uh, and other problems, only congestive heart failure does worse. I mixed it up a little bit. The other one was mental health function. But this is work that we published recently, the first work to actually look at hard endpoints of, of, um, of clinical diagnosis of anxiety, depression, and suicide. So these suicidality is either completed suicide or tried to commit suicide. And what we see is about 44% high, higher rate of either suicide or attempted suicide amongst people with psoriasis. And this is all comers, even people with mild disease. And to put this in perspective for you, uh, when people were looking at isotretinoin as a risk factor for suicide, same database was used. They showed no association at all of isotretinoin exposure and suicide, uh, and no association at all of acne and suicide. And here we're looking at psoriasis, predominantly mild in the general population, and a very strong signal of suicide and suicidal behavior. So this is a big issue for our patients. Uh, it's important to be aware of uh, the mental health toll that psoriasis plays on people. So uh, what I do is I ask about depression and anxiety symptoms and monitor the impact of my treatments on psychiatric symptoms. Uh, as Abby alluded to, many of our therapies will improve mood disorders over time. Some idiosyncratically could exacerbate mood disorders, like oral retinoids, for example. Uh, I refer my patients for treatment as appropriate. And then there's some data that suggests that cognitive behavioral therapies, such as meditation, can modestly enhance response to certain psoriasis therapies, like, um, like therapy. So it's actually randomized controlled trial data for that. It's certainly harmless, and it helps a lot with anxiety. So I often recommend to my patients who are willing to consider it to consider doing uh, meditation training uh, as advocated by John Kabat-Zinn, a leader in this area. All right, we're going to close with psoriatic arthritis. Uh, so psoriatic arthritis are more common, prevalent uh, comorbidities amongst people with psoriasis. Uh, you probably heard that psoriatic arthritis affects anywhere from 
3% to 300% of patients with psoriasis or something like that. Uh, and that is mainly because it depends on how bad their skin disease is. So the more severe your skin disease is, the more likely you are to have comorbid psoriatic arthritis. If you have very little psoriasis, your likelihood is about 6%. If you have very severe psoriasis, likelihood gets up to more like 40 to 50% odds of having uh, psoriatic arthritis. So in all of our patients, even with mild disease, the prevalence is high enough that we need to ask questions about this. Uh, earlier slide, I got psoriasis in the elbow. We have to be asking, does that person have joint symptoms? Because they do, we need to identify it. Uh, I see in my own practice, a lot of patients who had joint replacements, all sorts of things done, because no one recognized they had inflammatory arthritis. Uh, this is a disease that's not well understood by orthopedic surgeons and by um, general internists. Only rheumatologists and us know about it. Uh, so remember that the prevalence varies by biosurface area that psoriatic uh, arthritis usually occurs either on or after the onset of psoriasis, so we are well positioned to diagnose this disease and screen for it. Uh, it can be progressive and can cause permanent joint, dam joint damage. We want to identify it early and have it managed properly to prevent people from becoming disabled from it. And some somewhat useful risk factors for progression are C-reactive proteins and number of joint involved. So for patient, many patients with psoriasis will have joint complaints. I ask them to have stiffness in their, uh, their joints in the morning. That gets better with activity over time. Uh, if they don't have any obvious signs of inflammation on their skin exam, on their joint exam, and their pain is minimal, the C-reactive protein and they don't have, is normal and they don't have a lot of joints involved, I'm not that worried. But if they have an elevated CRP or lots of joints, they have a higher risk of progression to permanent joint damage. And those are people who I push much more on to go to rheumatology. So implications, identify signs and symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. This is morning stiffness. It gets better with activity. Swollen tender joints, dactylitis, swollen digits. Enthesitis, pain where, joints, where tendons insert, like at the Achilles. Uh, you could often you get chest X-rays of I'm sorry, you get X-rays of affected joints, the small joints of the hands and feet, uh, to look for uh, bony changes. That could be very uh, specific for psoriatic arthritis. And these are some patients from clinic, uh, highly associated with nail findings. Here's a person with periungal inflammation, DIP inflammation. Uh, this is easy, you know. Doc, why is my toe blue? I mean, you see patients like this. They've been walking around this for like 10 years and no one said a word to them. You know, their interns look at them, no one's saying a thing to them. This guy's got dactylitis, he's got underlying joint disease. Uh, and then this is a picture of enthesitis, swelling where the Achilles tendon inserts. And you need to remember that your patients who have comorbid psoriatic arthritis, which a lot of them will, uh, if you're gonna use systemic therapy, some of them work quite well for this disease, some not necessarily so well. So TNF inhibitors and methotrexate are probably the gold standard for people who have uh, psoriatic arthritis. Uh, other drugs, uh, not, so sore, not so sure, but may have some role to play. So we're gonna conclude by saying that it's really a quick uh, and evolving literature New and evolving literature identifying environmental risk factors for psoriasis, diseases which may occur as a consequence of chronic psoriasis. Uh, we need more research to understand how psoriasis treatment either increases or decreases the risk of metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, psoriatic arthritis, and cancer outcomes. But all that being said, there's clearly important implications for the management of our patients today. And I'll close there by thanking all the funding sources from the NIH and foundations that support my research program, uh, all my collaborators, postdocs, pre-docs, and coordinators who helped me bring this research to you. Thank you for your attention.